Steve, happy Monday. How's it going, man? Uh, really, really good. Yeah. It's exciting times uh, here. Yeah, man. Coming up middle, late July. Hunting season's around the corner. Still got like a million. I don't know what August and September look like for hunting. I had some <laughs> cool, cool options pop up here recently. Got to decide what way I want to go with it. How upset do I want the wife? How, how many days do I want to be gone? You know? So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's good, man. Excited. Yeah. The bug is in the air. Yeah. This is weird for you not having, uh, being this close and still having a lot of stuff up in there. Yeah. The year of COVID, I guess, man. Yeah. Right. It's been, <laughs> well, the kicker is Idaho. You know, I've been more crazy fortunate. And someone, one of my friends was complaining about that uh, all of our non resident tags sold out, right? Because we've been uh, always able to buy an extra tag. So, uh, for deer and elk so basically the any leftover non-resident tags were available to to residents at a non-resident price af- after august 1st so for the last six years right I've, I've bought extra tags for everything so it just opens up your options i could you know early hunt archery and then late hunt archery or grab a rifle and do something and and all that sold out this year so it's um i was saying like well you kind of just like took the cookie away from the kid right like mm-hmm. they were getting a cookie every night they probably didn't need it or ice cream or whatever you know like we were so spoiled for so long it's it's hard to complain now yeah. that it's been taken away but it does change things quite a bit you know um like i'm planning to early archery uh, mule deer hunt you know go get up there in the high country and uh normally it'd just be you know i got a bow in hand if it's like a 150 buck or something i'm game let's go stock it and make it happen and now it's like well uh, maybe I rethink that a little bit just cause I don't want to, I want to drag out my season as best as possible, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, just kind of changes the, uh, the mindset going into the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, uh, well, yeah. In this Monday minutes, as usual, diving into questions from you guys, which I always appreciate first, um, before we get into that, just wanted to, I don't know, but sometimes I feel like we do a really, uh, terrible job at keeping guys updated on what's going on outside of answering questions especially on a monday minute and talking about exo stuff but we have this week we're getting ready to launch a um a giveaway we did it in years past and it's really just fun to see um you know we've done a video series uh you and i steve and then a bunch of guys associated with exo in certain ways of like a what's in my pack video and uh, we thought it'd be fun. Well, let's see what's in all the users' packs, right? Not necessarily make them make a video, but one of the best ways to do that is just Instagram. Like you can snap a photo of your gear and your pack and kind of like share it and tag it. And so we did that last year and it was a lot of fun. We're going to do it again this year. Um, so it's just called the In My Exo Giveaway. And we have a whole bunch of prizes. Um, we got rifle scopes and holsters and calls and knives and um, all kinds of cool stuff to give away from um, SIG and Ivory and Born and Raised and Benchmade and SNS. Um, so it's always fun to A, see what guys are packing gear wise this year because that's on top of everybody's mind. And then B, just to be able to give some stuff away. So if you're not yet, if you, um, use Instagram and you're following us, it's just at hunt backcountry. Um, we will launch the, um, the giveaway through there. And then if you don't get our emails, um, there's going to be emails about it as well. And looking at doing some options or if you're not on Instagram, you can still enter. Um, and so if you're not already, I would just say, go sign up, make sure you get our emails and you can just do that at exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter. 
Um, and then we'll try to get, um, you know, an entry method for the giveaway that's not through Instagram through that as well. So just want to give you guys that update um, on that contest coming because there's a whole bunch of cool prizes to give away and, and fun stuff to see there. But Steve, I guess in terms of uh, since we mentioned it, Nexo update, man, what's what's going on currently? I know for a lot of guys a year it, this time of year, we're still getting calls on like, hey, can I get a pack before season? Yeah. Um, um, and that type of deal. So what's going yeah, on? Yeah, this time of year, we're just like, uh, you know, trying to paddle upstream without an oar, it feels like. Uh, <laughs> it, it just, the you know, it's kind of uh, our Christmas season, right, of most retailers, everyone gearing up for hunting season. So it's just full on, uh, just as busy as we could be, uh, just trying to keep up, right, with shipping packs and keep our, our lead times reasonable. So we're averaging about three to four days right now. Uh, so we have really good stock of everything. It's just, you know, that much of a backlog to, if you placed an order by the time we get to it and get it shipped out the door. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of, uh, you know, compared to years past, pretty organized chaos, but still feels like chaos where we're just kind of surviving. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, doing good. We did, um, um, well, yeah, yeah, we got, uh, we're just good to go with stock and inventory. It's just a matter of uh, keeping up with everything. So, yeah. um, yeah. Well, yeah, let's dive into um, some listener questions for this Monday, man. There's a couple um, quick ones I talked last week about um, shooting with my suppressor. And there's a couple quick follow-up questions to that and actually some other uh, related questions to that rifle build, which we talked about in the podcast and article a while ago. So I'm actually going to do um, a little follow-up article on that. So again, if you guys... Uh, it's not out yet, but the best way to make sure you see that type of stuff is just make sure you get our emails or you can go check the website later this week and I'll get that up. But to hit a couple of the quick ones that came up, um, what types, what type of changes in velocity did I see when shooting suppressed? Um, the common thoughts and most common experience, it seems, um, in research and reading that I had done months ago leading up to shooting with a suppressor. And then even when we talked with Zach from Thunder Beast is most commonly you'll get a little bit of an increase in velocity just because you're essentially, um, by it's not the same as adding barrel length, but essentially with the suppressor, your that bullet is under pressure for a little bit longer. And so you can get a jump of, you know, 10, feet per second, 15 feet per second, depending. What was super curious to me is I got the exact opposite um, so far and testing a few loads. And I don't know if there's anything to suppressor break in. I don't believe that there is, but um, long story short with this rifle, this barrel and the few loads I've tested so far, I was getting about a 10 feet per second loss. The only other variable to that um, is I'm, I was shooting with a lab radar to gauge the uh, velocities. And prior to that, one thing with the lab radar is the position um, in terms of where it's related with the muzzle. Um, prior to shooting with the suppressor, I had that brake on. And so you position um, the lab radar behind the brake so it's not taking that blast. With the, with the suppressor, it's the exact opposite. Um, you will put the lab radar slightly in front of the muzzle or at this point, the suppressor um, so that it picks it up most accurately. So I don't know if there's any variability there. I'm curious to do some more testing, but I did test multiple, um, some of the hand loads I did with hammer bullets and multiple factory offerings. And in that configuration, I was getting a little bit of loss, pretty inconsequential, but um, I will be sure to to update. And even, you know, one, one of the things with the suppressor is I'm going to be running on multiple different rifles. So it'll be interesting to see if I get, say, consistently a 
loss with this rifle, but for some other reason with another rifle, another cartridge, I do get that increase. But either way, you're talking plus or minus 10 feet, so it's not going to make a massive difference there. Yeah. Um, huh. Interesting. One of the other common questions was how much does the suppressor weigh and what is the overall weight of my rifle now? So um, the I, we mentioned this. I went with the Thunder Beast Ultra 7 which was nine ounces, I think 9.7 actually. And then Steve, you went with the ultra five, uh, which is obviously two inches short, shorter, and will be a little bit lighter. So, um, the ultra sevens 9.7 ounces. Um, my overall weight on the rifle with the suppressor and optics and everything, I'm basically field ready at right about nine pounds, just over nine pounds with the suppressor. So I was running depending on how I had it set up between eight to eight and a half um, prior to the suppressor. And so I'm essentially running closer to nine ish since. So there's always variables on, is that with a loaded mag? Is it with a bipod? Yada, yada, yada. For me, we use that Spartan bipod. And so it essentially stays detached. I don't typically include it, but I'm basically ready to hunt, right? Just a touch over nine pounds with the suppressor. Um, yeah, so more to come on that. If you guys want to check out that article, um, I'll have that coming out uh, later this week. Steve, there was questions on, you mentioned the death hike last week and your IT band and that bugging you. Um, and this guy wrote in and said, him and his brother go out west every year in elk hunt in Idaho. And for the past, in three of the past four years, they've both experienced IT band pain on an extended hunt. So they train hard all year, every year, just stay in quote-unquote mountain shape. But even with all that, they still get pain, especially on downhills by day three or four. Said he's spoken with doctors and other than stretches and ibuprofen, they don't seem to have much of an answer. So he's wondering, what do you guys do, if anything specific, to help keep the IT band pain at bay on extended hunts or on long hikes like the death hike? So we've touched on this in the past, but, um, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I w it's never been, it's probably more consistent of an issue for me. Oh, five, six years ago where every other hunt it would show up. And then I kind of went quite a few years with it, maybe only showing up once a season. Um, and so that kind of, I think when it was more consistent, I was probably doing more pre stretching, um, grabbing a foam roller, uh, I would, I used to literally have a foam, uh, foam roller that was in my tote and I would roll out right at the trailhead before I left. Um, and just basically just rolling out that whole IT band. So it's kind of from your hip right off the kind of the side, all the way down to your knee, uh, and just roll that sucker out. And then, um, when I'm out in the field and I feel it starting to happen, right. Feel a little, you know, twinge here or something. Um, then I immediately stop, I stretch, I grab my trekking poles. If you can have a buddy, grab the trekking pole and roll it out. Um, that can help. And, and usually I can maintain it something on the death hike, you know, where it's just, you're literally hiking from 6am to midnight for, you know, three days in a row. Uh, you know, there's just, no, there's only so much you can do, right? Like you, you'd have to stop every 15 minutes and roll that sucker out. So it's just when it flares up, there's, you know, again, it's just kind of a, not much you can do, but power through it. So, um, but it, uh, rolling them out, stretching. And then, um, yeah, as far as, uh, any like workout stuff you can do prior, I'm frankly not aware. We maybe should get some 
you know, expert on here to like, is there exercises you can do prior to a hunt, you know, the four weeks leading up to it to kind of improve that improve the flexibility. Uh, I'm sure there's something it's probably, it's probably more stretching yoga type stuff than I would think, um, actually like exercises, but it'd be super interesting to talk to somebody. I've never had anyone give me any feedback on that. Right. Yeah. He didn't say what they're, I mean, he said they train hard all year, um, but he didn't say what they're doing specifically. And then he said they're in Wisconsin, which obviously is, there's some hills there, but not big mountains. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not the PT expert, but just on my prior experience, I would say things that like weighted lunges and obviously we want to do those controlled and make sure you're doing them with good form. But I think there is, um, you know, beyond the major muscle groups, like movements that are going to, uh, strengthen, um, you know, tendons and joints and ligaments. And so things like lunges, one thing that, and this came up, Steve, when we were playing on the original death hike, um, this year before COVID messed up all those plans, uh, was the snowshoe aspect of that. And, um, me having limited time on snowshoes and av- uh, availability to train on snowshoes, I started looking at, you know, cause that changes your gait, right? Like hiking versus snowshoeing is going to mm-hmm. be far different. Um, and we had both talked about, we, th- we thought there's gonna be big demands on like the hip flexors and that because of the way that your gait's changing. And so I started doing in advance of that some, uh, work with bands and basically like stretches with bands um so think of like certain leg swings but you have the resistance of a band um and i i noticed i just felt better this we never got to do the death hike and the snowshoe hike but i think that there's a lot to that um with the hip flexors and things that i just started feeling way better on hikes in general i felt more durable and just less achy from doing that type of work. And so again, um, not trying to play the internet expert. This is like a N of one case, but I think that there, there has to be certain movements, um, essentially stretching with resistance, like with those bands that could be helpful, but yeah, it would be fun to get somebody on and talk about that. The only other thing I'd say is, um, you know, mentioned with rolling out with trekking poles, which are great, um, in the past on long hunts or some of the previous death hikes, there's, um, I've brought, uh, you can use like a little cross ball or something of that, some, that size, um, to essentially roll on. Cause you can kind of get into little spots better by rolling on a mm-hmm. little ball than a trekking pole. And then the coolest one I found specifically, um, for hiking and for packing in is there's a company called Rology, R-A-W-L-O-G-Y, and they make little balls, um, for rolling on, but they make them out of cork. And so they're way lighter, um, than like a lacrosse ball and they come in a couple different sizes. Um, so those would be super cool to check out. Um, if you're looking to like pack something in, in addition to your trekking pole to use. So, um, this is an interesting question, Steve, how does your gear change for one to three night trips versus five to seven day trips? Or is the only difference truly just your food? Uh, quick answer. Truly just food. Um, the, you know, it's my, maybe I'm looking at an extra pair of socks for that duration. Um, but that's kind of it, man. It's, it's, it's kind of simple. Um, the only variable would be, obviously it's fairly easy to forecast, um, weather for a three day hunt, four day hunt, right? You know, again, I always just have my in reach. Obviously I'm checking weather before I leave town and then get up in the mountains and I, and I, if it's when I checked weather prior to leaving town, it's, it's like, 
yeah, maybe this is going to rain or snow on me, then I'll recheck with my inReach once I'm up there at the actual spot where I'll be hunting, uh, see what it's predicting for, for my specific location. And so if it's, if it's iffy, then I'm looking, you know, okay, what are the things I might want to take if this weather does come in, you know? Um, but that's it, you know, so that maybe that means it's a, a rain jacket, um, or maybe it's a typically I've got my tarp and bivy. If it's looking really crummy, I also have a tent there, right? So I'll, I'll ditch the tarp and bivy, throw the tent in, um, for the kind of, you know, crappier weather, but that's, um, it's really simple. I, guys, I think probably overcomplicate it uh, and it just doesn't need to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's the variable for me is extended weather. Um, and the likelihood of kind of forecasting that or probability I'm more prone to throw in that rain jacket for a five to seven day trip versus looking at three days and going, well, things look good. And worst case, if I get wet, you know, on day three, like say that the, that's when the weather is right. It's like, oh, we're planning on coming out anyway. So like, who cares? Right. Um, versus yeah, that five to seven day trip. So I, I am just, and I think there's a component to that that's mental, right? Like I'm, I'm going to be in there for a week versus just, ah, I can handle anything for a few days. Like there's a different mindset there. Um, especially if you don't have as much experience doing that, where you're going to be prone to pack more and more. Again, going back to packing your fears for the longer trip. Um, and it, I'd say it partially depends on, you know, for the guy who's planning on going in for five to seven days, if you're planning on setting up like that backcountry base camp versus staying much more mobile, that's also going to mean you're probably more prone to pack in a few extras, right? Because maybe you're telling yourself, well, it's just, you know, this one trip in and then we're setting up camp. And so, you know, for this one trip in, I can afford to take this and that because I'm not going to be carrying it every day. Whereas if you're going to be hunting much more mobile, hunting with camp on your back, you know, you you are being more analytical about everything you're carrying. So I'd say that for me, this comes back into the style of the trip too and how you plan on camping logistically. And that's going to dictate um, probably what you're prone to bring or not. Um but yeah, it's essentially food. I mean, it obviously, it's going to depend on time of the year and weather, but um, it shouldn't be too drastically different. Yeah. All right. This is a, a big question we could talk uh, at length about, and we've, we've hit on this prior in prior podcasts, but first time Western elk hunter going out for his first elk, trying to prepare in advance, what does he need to know about breaking down an elk? For the first time, what is the best way to field dress it, etc.? Um, I, I know from the context of this question, he's coming from out east. Probably didn't say specifically, but didn't sound like a new hunter, so probably has um, some experience taking care of deer. But uh, what would you tell somebody about elk specifically, Steve, for the first time that they should consider, think through in advance? Um, you know, it's just a yeah. If he's used to cutting up a deer, it's just a big deer uh <laughs> it's uh hopefully you got a hunting partner you know unless unless you've got experience breaking down an elk by yourself breaking down an elk by yourself is never easy um but especially if you're new to it that's that's going to be quite the task uh i guess you know when elk's on the ground you get your photos um try to get it positioned um i basically just want you know sometimes it's just unavoidable but hopefully you've got like a nice flat-ish spot um, where you can break them down because it makes life a lot easier. You know, it's probably worth trying to drag them, you know, five, ten feet uh, to get them on something flat. Sometimes it's, like I said, it's not an option. Um, 
And man, it's just pretty simple. Uh, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming if it's the first time you're doing it, but I, for me, um, I guess I can quickly break down how I do it. So I start, um, I get them, you know, laying on the side, both all legs just kind of pointing out one direction, right? Um, take the knife and start right up the spine. Um, and basically just go from the, the back of the hind quarter all the way up the spine, all the way up to the base of the neck. So just make that really long slice. And then I just start um, uh, skinning it. So I just start taking the, the top side, um, peeling it down and just skin the hind quarter, skin through the ribs into the stomach, skin the front quarter off. Um, and then so now I got all the skin off. I simply just take you know, I'll lift up the front leg, uh, basically just cut around it. You, you got no bones to cut through on the front leg, so you can pop that off, you know, within a minute. Um, then the hind leg, I like to, I'll do my first cuts um, from the top. Um, so basically where the back strap ends all the way around, um, basically to, you know, balls. Uh, and I'll basically get that cut in, and then I'll come in and, and I cut down, oh man, five, six inches. And then I'll come in, I'll lift the leg up and then come in from the inside. And there's a little trick there to working around the, the socket and the hip bones. Um, cause at times you're going to get frustrated. You're going to feel like, you know, you should be able to pop through this. Um, just kind of take your time. You can kind of get down there. Once you hit the hip bone, you got to like kind of actually come back up at an angle and then you just feeling the bone with your knife. And then when it ends, you actually dive sharp back down. Um, it's like a, you know, like a 90 degree angle off that bone. Um, and then, uh, and then that gets you right to the hip socket and it pops off and then you just cut it off. And that's where having somebody like l physically lifting up the hind quarter while you're cutting with a knife, it makes it a little bit cleaner and easier to do. Um, a little bit, so it's an understatement, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if, so if you, one note, if you're by yourself, I, I would absolutely take some type of ground tarp or something like that. Cause the meat. You know, as you're cutting the iron quarter off and, and basically flopping it over, it's basically going to be sitting on whatever the ground is right there. Um, oh, the other thing, too, is sorry, I've already before I start cutting off the quarters, I break off the knees. Um, I find it's easier to do it while it's on the animal because then you've got um, you kind of uh, and keep in mind, too, that you don't need a single saw to do break down an entire elk. You can do this all with a knife. So on the front knee joint, uh, there's a seam right in the bones, uh, right in the joint that you can just work with. Once you start cutting out enough cart cartilage, uh, you can just simply like put that against your knee and break it. Um, and then the hindquarter, uh, same deal, can come off fairly easy. Uh, it's going to take some technique and time, and you can't even really describe it, but there is a, a, a seam in the joints there that you can break that off. But I like to break those off prior to taking the quarters off the animal because then you've got it's still attached to the animal, and it gives you a lot better leverage to, to break that. Um, so break off the knees, and then I'll, I'll lift off and take the quarters off. Um, and then, yeah, by yourself, have a, have a blanket or a ground sheet to, to uh, keep the meat as clean as possible. So I've got the legs off. I go right to the back strap, cut out the back strap, uh, and then the last few years kind of got taught the technique to do a, a rib roll. So I get all the rib meat off, which is awesome. I would, I think there's some good YouTube videos out there on it. If you search like elk rib roll, um, really cool technique. And there's way, way more meat there than you think. Uh, get the rib meat off, move up to the neck, get all the neck meat cleaned off. And then basically that whole half of the animal is done. And then I'm going to flip them over, uh, repeat on the other side. Um, and then 
last thing is just get the head off, you know, depending on what you're doing. Obviously, if this is a, a bull you want to mount, um, the, the, when you're first skinning it, that, you know, you're taking that into consideration, right? So um, this is just pretty rare that I've packed out a cape. Um, and then, um, yeah, so I've cut the neck meat off, get up to the head, and then um, uh, basically right at the base of the skull, you can take a knife and just start working down towards the, the spine, the vertebrae, uh, and find a seam in there. And once you start cutting that off, um, you can get it off pretty, pretty easily. Um, and, and just kind of spin the head around until it pops off. And, you know, you usually got to cut the last few little bits of cartilage and meat just to get the whole, get the separation. Uh, and one thing that I like to do, so I don't ever pack a saw. If you pack a saw, you could just, you know, saw off the antlers, um, at this point, just skin the top of the skull, get all the hair out. It's really important to to trim up any little bit of meat and fat because it's going to get caught in the saw blades. But if you don't have that, um, I've got the head off. I'll skin the head and then um, I'll take off the whole lower jaw. And that takes um, some time. You really can't mess it up, right? It's just a matter of uh, kind of just digging the knife around and, and getting it off. But you can completely remove the lower jaw, the tongue, everything. And that's quite a bit of weight. Um, so I'd get that off and then, yeah, basically at that point I'd have, uh, four bags of, of quarters, uh, a bag or two, depending on the size of the elk of boned out meat and basically a head with, with the nose on it, you know, look, kind of look like a European mount. Um, that's it, man. Like it's, it's sounds, you know, um, complicated. I guess I've done it so many times that it's, it's not too bad of a task. I mean, once you're proficient at it uh it's probably an hour or less to get that all done um you know uh but yeah the first time you do it it may take three or four hours one thing i um i guess i encourage you to do is um just take your time with it mm-hmm. uh, especially if it's your first time don't you know what i mean like if it's if it's your first time and you've got you know three hours of light left like man let's break this sucker down real quick and get it going get it out of here um, ah, man, I just like take your time and, um, camp right there, you know, hundred yards away from the elk that night. It'd be super important to, um, I'd go get the hide off of it, uh, so it can start cooling down. Um, but you know, feel free to like take your time at that moment and, and not rush the process, mm-hmm. uh, cause you'll do a, do a better job. Yeah. I'd say take your time, not only for the safety aspect of it. Um, you know, you don't want to get rushing with a knife, especially if you're in the back country, but the other thing is just take your time so that you can process what you're doing and learn from it for next time right like it's easy to to go in and just start cutting away at stuff um but then you realize a i did a really crappy job and then b when i have to do this again next time i don't really know what i just did right (laughs) like i just started cutting stuff up um which you know been there done that but like to go in and look at the anatomy and figure out what's the best way to do this and take some time and intentionality with it i think it's just helpful um, in the long run, if, you know, and for this guy, if you're from out East and you taking care of deer means gutting it and throwing it on a four wheeler or dragging it or whatever, like essentially the process we just talked about, is, you know, the, uh, the gutless method. Right. And so it's a different paradigm for some guys who are from out East and just, you know, open up the cavity, pull the guts, and then maybe take it a deer somewhere. But whenever you have the opportunity just start trying the gutless method on deer at home just for the practice of it because anatomy wise it's essentially the same um it's just a different style and it's a different technique and that's when i what i did uh, before i started 
elk hunting was, you know, just with whitetails. Like, even if I didn't have to pack the sucker out and I could have, you know, done a, a gutting style and drag or what have you, or just go gutless, figure it out, try it, um, and learn from it each time you do it. And then it's, you know, not everybody has this opportunity, but doing it with people is super helpful. Like I've learned things from you, Steve, Steve, I know that you've learned things from other guys and it's, it's kind of cool to see other people do the process and pick up on little tips and tricks as well along the way. So. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, super. I'm uh, Mike that we went to Kodiak with. Like, I remember telling you, like, watch this. Like, yeah, he is like, he's done it very, a time like, or two. Yeah, he's done it a time or two. Very smooth and precise, but just like fat. Doesn't make a single wrong cut. Like, just do 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 do, and all of a sudden the animals broke down. You're like, holy crap. Yeah. Um, where I seem to like, I I probably forget. Like, you know, you over the course of a year, I forget a few little steps and kind mm-hmm. of fumble my way through some things at times. Uh, or I, I know where I'm going, but sometimes it's like, oh, where's that bone again? You know, how yeah. do I get around this spot? Um, and he just doesn't forget. It's just it's impressive. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, what you mentioned about the knees and the joints, um, practice that too, even on whitetails if you can. That's something that's maybe a little bit mm-hmm. different for some guys who aren't used to quartering deer um, is actually identifying those joints and working them uh, with a knife because it's, again, it's the same, just elk or bigger um, if you're practicing on a whitetail or something. Um, Steve, real quick, we had a, a related question um, from a guy who in his theoretical question, just filled his elk tag and did everything we just talked about. Now he's wondering what's the best way to load an elk head on your pack antlers up or down tines forward or back. And how do you stabilize the head or rack for the pack out? Oh, antlers up drives me nuts. <laughs> uh, Cause it's so, I mean, the only reason you're doing that is to look cool for a photo. It drives me absolutely nuts. Um, absolutely. Antlers down. You're going to put the, um, I actually just shot a video on this last night. Uh, I just grabbed a an old small six point I killed a few years ago and, and just did it with a sandbag for, for the EXO's website. So that'll be up here probably by the end of the week. Um, but simply, yeah, antlers, uh, antlers down points away from your body. Um, and you just put the head right there at the top of the pack. So, uh, if you, if it's just, uh, it's nice to kind of have a platform at the top of the frame to set that on. So that should be, um, either the elk meat or if you've already packed out meat and you're just doing the head, you're going to have your bag and you're going to put that right on top of the bag. Um, and then simply, yeah, you just use the lid, uh, and or our accessory straps. If you're running without a lid, uh, loop them around the, the base of the horns, just kind of get that all in there nice and snug and, and cinch it down. There's one technique that I haven't really used. Um, actually I've never done, but I've seen other people do and it, it uh, it works really well as to if you can, be out there in the field, a, a trekking pole would be perfect for this, but you never want to cannibalize a trekking pole in the field. Yeah. Um, but they simply lay a, uh, a stick across the back of the pack, um, and then tie and it basically it's down near the tips of the antlers. And then they just tie off with parachute cord that stick to the antlers on both sides. And that keeps that from swaying back and forth, um, and just locks it in really, really well. So if, if you ever had like a, you know, Anything bigger, like like a big 320 to 350 bull, uh, I think it's pretty beneficial to do that if if you got a long kind of technical pack out, right, where it's not just like dropping down a trail and hiking the trail out, where you're up and over logs and rocks and stuff like that. I think it'd be pretty beneficial even to add that two or three pounds of of uh, you know a little uh, find a small tree, a good sturdy limb, something like that. Um, but basically brace the horns. We could maybe uh. 
um, throw a, a throw an image out there on social media or something today of somebody doing this because it's it's very beneficial. But that's it, man. Yeah, points uh, tips down, pointing away from your body, um, and you're good to go. To to flip them up in the air, I mean, it's just like uh, it's not going to be stable. It's going to be wobbling all over the place. You're putting weight way up high in the air. It just yeah, doesn't make any sense. Mm, yeah, yeah. If um, we can try and get that post on social, if we forget or you guys don't see it, just shoot us an email. And I know that we have some stuff with that stabilizing um, stick that we can send folks. If you shoot us an email, if you want to see that in action. Um, the only final thing, just real quick, Steve, before we wrap this one up, is um, the people have spoken, and the general consensus is that <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> the general consensus is that my choice in gummy bears is superior uh, with Haribo. We have had some advocates for your weaker position, which I appreciate them supporting you, but. Um, I mean, the people have spoken and Haribo is much better than Black Forest or whatever that trash is that you eat. Um, although this was funny. So one of the guys who had to write in and say that I was wrong and that Black Forest was better complained that the Haribo gummy bears get too like hard or too chewy and the Black Forest are soft Mm -hmm. and that's why he liked them better, which I will concede that point. The problem is I actually like them harder and chewier. And so what I will do, um, kind of like how you might dry age your meat is I will buy the giant bag of Haribo gummy bears, open it, leave it wide open, and actually let them age and get a little bit of firmness, um, which I found is the key to the best gummy bear. That's pure crazy talk, man. No. Pure crazy talk. And then we did have one guy who came out of, he came way out of left field, said that we were both wrong. (laughs) And there's some company or brand called Albanese. Uh, They are on Amazon. He said they are the absolute best. And so we have to try those. And okay. even on the Albanese packaging, it said the world's best gummy bear, which is a little bit <laughs> like, you know, it made me think of the elf um, when he, that little diner with the world's best coffee. Right. Like, Congratulations. <laughs> so if you haven't seen the elf, you're wrong too. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it, man. That's all I got for today. Okay. The, the war wage is on, man. We'll have to do a blind taste test with people who aren't experienced with it to get a consensus because, right. yeah, people are crazy. <laughs> Cool. Well, guys, if you got any questions for us for a future Monday Minute, just shoot us that email to podcast at xamountgear.com. We will get on the list to discuss in future episodes. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. We got full-length episode this Wednesday, Talking Elk. It's been a while. Wrapped up the Muley series. We're excited to talk elk a bit more in depth in the coming weeks. And so stay tuned for that. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already.